Understanding historical fast days, fast days about events which occurred thousands of years ago, never easy. The Shivasu Batamuses, the Asarabitevises, the Tzalmudalias. A fast is more effective when it's immediate, when it responds to a particular crisis, when there's an urgency, when there's a energy to it, where there's a crisis mentality. Obviously, we don't wish those, but that's when Atanas really pulses with energy, really pulses with meaning. Um, even the Ramban, who felt that Tfila is not the Arisa, he argued with the Ramban, felt that davening during Atanas is the Arisa, based on specific psukim in Parshas Baloscha, Al-Hatsar, Hatsar and amongst the historical Taniyos, probably Tisha B'Av is the most accessible. Um, the the uh, sweep and the scope of the day is just so large and so um, unmistakable. Tanis Esther is swept up in the energy of Purim and the transition from Afela Leora, from the suffering and identifying with the suffering and the quick turnaround into the energy and enthusiasm celebration that tends to be a little easier. Tzalm Gedalia, well Tzalm Gedalia, although it has nothing to do per se with the Aseret Simei it's almost impossible not to convert some of the energy of Tzalm Gedalia into the Tshuva and the Malchus of the Aseret Simei so that has its own tag, its own reference point. And Asar Betevis, interestingly enough, though it does mark the day in which Yushalayim was surrounded, it's hard to really associate it with Tisha B'av because it's ten months removed from Tisha B'av and we go through this experience every year. Without question, people who lived through Asar Betevis were able to tether it to Tisha B'av, but for us, it's just too distant. It's, it's months and months away. But in some ways, being that it has become converted into a day of memorializing and commemorating those victims of the Holocaust and their Gevura, in particular for <coughs> those people or those communities who don't um, commemorate Holocaust on Yom HaShoah. Obviously, there's a big debate, and people who tend to recognize the state of Israel as a religious organ, as a divine intervention. So the decrees of the state of Israel turning Yom HaShoah into a day of Holocaust remembrance tend to be very uh, meaningful. Those who don't, don't feel that Yom HaShoah should be dedicated, and they tend to follow the recommendation of the Rabbanim after the war who suggested that Asar B'tavis be converted into a day of Holocaust memorial, and for obvious reasons, precisely because Asar B'tavis was so far from Tisha B'av and had so little happening on its day, it was a, almost like an open day, a day that can be easily converted into a Holocaust day. And then there's the enigma of Shivasu B'tambas. Because our instincts and our practice tend to unify Shivasar Vitamos into Tishabab, especially for Ashkenazim, for whom the period of the three weeks have so many elements of Avelos. And in particular, because two major events that happened on Shivasar Vitamos directly led to the events of the Khorban, in particular, um, the fact that Yushalayim was breached in the second Mesa Mikdash. And the first base on Mikdash was probably breached earlier in Tammuz, but it's still Tammuz, so there's a breaching of the walls after the siege, which was began, or which began in Tebes, 
months and months later, the walls of Yushalayim were encroached and the rampaging destruction of Yushalayim began. In the first Beis HaMikdash, the Rambam describes, some say it was in the second Beis HaMikdash, but at least according to the Rambam, the daily Korban HaTamid was discontinued. There are stories in the Gemara about how they used to lower two boxes every day out of the, the besieged city of Yishalayim with money in it, and those boxes would return with um, calves, or not calves, excuse me, but kevas, but with sheep that could be offered as a Korban HaTamid because they couldn't obviously secure animals under siege. And at one point, there was a Jewish... <clears throat> double agent, someone who who knew exactly what these animals were being used for, and he he um, basically um, betrayed the Jewish secret. And that day, instead of sending up two sheep, two pigs were sent up, and that was a very tragic and hurtful, hurtful moment in which it became quite evident that this korban uh, was inevitable, receiving pigs instead of sheep. But there are three events that seem to have very little to do with Tisha B'av. And if we just convert Shivasar into a preliminary day of Tisha B'av, or the beginning of the three weeks, rather than sensing its meaning on its own, as well as its common meaning with the three weeks, but if we don't carve out an independent identity to Shivasar Batamos, we're missing some of the challenges and some of the messages of Shivasar Batamos. So what are some of the messages, the independent messages of Shivasar Batamos, having nothing to do with the um, preliminary moment leading towards Tisha B'av. So the three events which occurred in Shavasar Tamos, two events had absolutely nothing to do with Avelos and absolutely nothing to do with Chorban per se. One of them was, of course, the Luchos, the Egel. The Egel happened on Shavasar Tamos and the Luchos were shattered. But that can be traced to, and as I'll speak, speak about it a little bit, that can be traced to Tisha B'av. But there are two events, two uh, sad events, unfortunate, tragic events, and nothing to do per se with Tisha B'av. One of them wasn't even located in the Beis HaMikdash. It happened far away from the Beis HaMikdash, Apostomos. Um, probably a, a Roman soldier, according to most accounts. Some say he may have been a Greek uh, general. The name Apostomos does have Greek connotations or Greek intonations to it. But wherever he was, he burned the Torah far away from the Mikdash. Apostolos Harasha Sarifes HaTorah. It's all based on the Gemara Tanis and the five events which occurred in Shavasar. Another event is Hahamit Selim Behechal. Probably, this is attributed by most sources to the Greeks, probably in the second Beis HaMikdash, they erected an idol, probably an idol of Zeus, in the Beis HaMikdash. According to the Gemara's account, there were really two idols which were erected. One fell and broke on the other, but they erected an idol in the Beis HaMikdash and this really didn't have much to do with the destruction, certainly the first Beis HaMikdash had happened subsequent to it, and even the second Beis HaMikdash, which wasn't even destroyed by the Greeks. Those are the terrible five. Those are the fateful five events which occur in Shavasavitamas, the shattering of the Luchos, the uh, cessation of the Korban Atavid, probably in the first Beis HaMikdash, the breaching of the city in the second Beis HaMikdash, the erection of a pestle, of a statue, in the Hechal, in the inner chamber of the Beis HaMikdash, probably during the times of the Greeks, and some Roman general, some Roman soldier, burnt a Sefer Tar. I want to relate to those two events that are seemingly unrelated to the Horban and why their um, their occurrence contributed to converting Shivasan into a fast. Because again, you wouldn't think that Shivasan should be a fast day so close to Tisha B'Av. When it comes to fasts, 
there's always a danger of the inflation of fasting. If you fast too often, then every fast loses its meaning. Um, this is quite evident in the Gemaritanias, where we schedule and we calibrate different fasts for the absence of rain for barren years, and not everyone joins the fasts right away. Sometimes the initial preliminary Tanias are only joined by certain groups, because if everyone joined the original fast when rain hadn't fallen at least for a month or two after Sukkot, then subsequent fasts, which may be necessary, would be denuded, would be um, emptied of any meaning, because fast would just become something routine and trivial. So there's obviously got to be some compulsion, some motivation, converting Shivasana into Artanis. And unlike Asarabhateves or Tishabhav, where there's one singular central event, there's a combination of factors, there's a combination of five. So what are the larger connotations? What are the deeper impacts of a Sefer Torah being burnt or of an idol being erected in the Beit HaMikdash that have no small part in warranting Shavasar B'Tamuz as a fast day, even so close to Tisha B'Av? Well, the stationing of a statue, the construction of a statue in the Beit HaMikdash signaled two significant changes in history. And they may not be that evident. Number one, Ancient paganism, in many respects, was not an exclusion to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but in addition to. And even non-Jewish pagan leaders, be they religious pagan leaders, or be they um, non-religious, uh, military, political, Hashem is very much part of the discussion, of the dialogue, of the calculation. Even Nebuchadnezzar, who lays siege to Yerushalayim, and destroys the first base on Mikdash, even Nebuchadnezzar is quite aware of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's role in history. Nebuchadnezzar, according to Chazal, rose to glory as a scribe, and his original job was as a scribe, and when a letter was penned by one of the kings of Ashur, the empire which preceded Babel, when a letter was sent honoring the king of Judah and the god of Judah, the god of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the scribes, ran after that letter which had been dispatched inappropriately because Hashem's name was second. He took three great strides to recover that letter, to show honor to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and to place him first in the uh, in the set of tributes because of those three steps which Nebuchadnezzar executed to show honor to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We take three steps back before and after Shemona Esri. We want to at least be capable of the same type of reverence which Nebuchadnezzar was. And throughout Sefer Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's rise and fall is carefully, carefully depicted in dreams which he knows are being delivered by a Kurdish Baruch Hu. And it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar, because most, if not all, of the ancient pagan kings, and not just the ancient foreign pagan kings, but even Jewish paganists were adding. They weren't displacing. And even the Egel Hazav wasn't displacing a Kurdish Baruch Hu, was adding, and of course, in Judaism, any addition and certainly anything physical, and the combination of the two, adding a physical deity, is heresy, is, is apostasy. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu was still part of the discussion, part of people's awareness, part of the nevuos. Um, it wasn't replacing, it was merely expanding upon. And all of a sudden, as Greek culture developed its own more abstract, what we would say more sophisticated form of paganism, Pagan gods were no longer trees or forests, sea monsters. The pagan gods were a more, bit more ethereal, a bit more abstract, a bit less human, 
living far away rather than within the human reality, living on Mount Olympus. As paganism becomes more sophisticated, and these pagan gods don't um, enlarge or amplify monotheistic gods, they replace them. They become the source of authority rather than extensions of God or or representations or symbols of Akarish Barhu. And that act, that one tragic moment of establishing, building a, a statue of Zeus in the Beis Hamikdash, um, basically uh, um, epitomized this shift in history. On the Gemara Gitin on Daf Yudzayin on the day says, "I could Baruch on me that Jews couldn't withstand the Gazeros of Rome, so we exiled them to Babylonia. The first Gaulus was to Babylon, the second Gaulus was to Rome." Um, part of the challenge of Greece and Rome, ultimately, is because they upgrade and they update their paganism, and the Hakadosh Baruch Hu is lost from human imagination, and that wasn't something which existed in previous times. Again, these pagan it's hard to know which is better, which is worse. It's part of an evolutionary process, and of course, the part of the evolutionary process of Greek and Roman paganism is to yield a more abstract version of God, a more abstract version of, even if it's not a monotheistic God, and ultimately those brews of paganism do yield um, probably the most abstract form of paganism, that's of course Christianity, in which God has a son, but God's transcendence or God's non-physicality isn't really altered. But more importantly, it brews Islam, which is probably a pure, the purest non perfect form of monotheism because it doesn't really impute any physicality to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And by and large, Christianity and Islam are welcome developments in this march of monotheism. And it's certainly a far better world to live in than the world of ancient paganism. And to a degree, to a certain degree, Greek and Re- Greece and Rome and their form of paganism has nothing to do with this. But at least at that moment, that was a very, very difficult tragedy. It was a very difficult... Uh, it was, it was a hard thing to take. It was like a difficult, painful experience to witness in the Beis Hamikdash, to witness a, a statue of Zeus being erected, because that demonstrated a different chapter of paganism. And also demonstrated the hijacking of, of the Mikdash, the hijacking of our own religious symbols and our own religious edifices for alternate religions, which again wasn't something which was, which was too frequent or too prevalent in previous eras and previous periods. I'll talk a little bit later about the Plishtim hijacking the Aram, but that was in many respects a sign of deference. But certainly in our own jargon, in our own vernacular, every time we witness, we visit the Kotel and we see the Dome of the Rock or the, uh, or the, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, these are very difficult um, blemishes in our mind. These are very insulting. They create an affront that our own religion has been hijacked and our own locations have been hijacked, but it does represent, in some ways, and again, there's, I don't want to say a silver lining to all of it, but there is there is a redemptive element to it because it's not incidental that Yushalayim is the center in many respects of all three religions. It's not incidental that these spiritually charged locations are vied for, are competed for by all religions, and it just reminds us of the authenticity and, and of the inevitability of our own redemptive arc. So, this event which occurred in Yudzayin Tammuz of establishing a settlement in the Hefal, in some ways 
again, we, we take it for granted now that we take it for granted and we accept it. The notion of building statues and idols to deface or to insult or to disparage our religious site, um, unfortunately, over the last certainly thousand of years, we've come to just learn to live with this as a, as a fact of, of history. But it really started on Shivasar and it's symbolic connotations were not just the addition of pagan identities or pagan deities, but the displacement of HaKadosh Baruch Hu by a pagan statue and the hijacking of our Mikdash for a pagan statue. And the second event, which occurred in Shabbat Batamas, was in some ways even more tragic and even more insulting. And that was burning a Sefer Torah. And again, we just take this not for granted, but it's a fact of life. How many Sifritar have been burnt and defaced and vandalized over the last 2,000 years? But this is really the first recorded vandalizing of a Sifritar by Apostolos. And it didn't really occur in the Beis HaMikdash per se, or at least the records of this event don't suggest locating it or tagging it within the Beis HaMikdash. But it's very difficult not to read this story and not to frame it within the event of the Sar Harugam Alphos, of the attack on Tara, and in particular, the one attack of Rabbi Hananya ben Tradion, who was wrapped in a sacred Tara, and burnt alive, and surrounded by wet sponges, so that the death would be more painful, and he'd endure more suffering. And his Talmudian pleaded with him, and they said, Rabbi, just inhale the smoke, that you'll die more quickly, and he refused to. And his Talmudim asked him, well, Rebbe, what do you see? And he said, I see the parchment being burned while I see the letters levitating or gravitating towards Shemayim. And it's the juxtaposition of these two events, of Rebbe Hananya ben Tragios being burned with a Sefer Torah wrapped around him, and the Postamos burning a Sefer Torah, really heralds the era in which the enemies of the Jewish people didn't just attack Am Yisrael, their nation, or even their mikdash, but realized the true source of Amisrael's vitality and sustainability was the Sefer Torah. And the Sefer Torah had to be not just attacked, but burnt in public spectacle, and insulted, and vandalized, and defaced. And again, this is something which has occurred so often since, in the 2000 or so years, since Apostolos burnt the Sefer Torah, that we didn't even realize how epic, in a tragic way, Yudzayin Thomas has become, because it sets a model or an example of something which has laced and has characterized all of Jewish history. Um, I just want to span forward about 1,200 years or 1,300 years after Apostolos burned the Sefer Torah in 1244. Nicholas Donin debated the Jews He's egged on by the Dominican monks in a so-called neutral debate in Paris as to Judaism versus Christianity. And, of course, um, it was a stacked debate. No way the Jewish people were going to emerge victorious. And the verdict, of course, the foregone verdict of the debate was that Christianity was the correct religion. And at that point, not just was the Sefer Torah burnt, but the Talmud Torah Shabbat was burnt. And not just was one Gemara burned, but stacks and stacks and barrels and or, or wheelbarrows and, and wagons of, of, of Gemaras were heaped on a pile and burnt. 
And at that point, our enemies realized that at that point, the Jewish vitality was rabbinic, that Tanakh had become an international document issuing morality and monotheism and guidance for basically three religions. And it was Gemara and Parashat Alpeh, which was our unique religion and our unique province. That's why you can't teach a Gentile Parashat Echsav. You're absolutely not allowed to teach a Gentile Parashat Alpeh because it's a special, unique gift to the Jewish people to assure their survival without any cultural code or cultural uh, land or country or language. We all share the common language of Parashat Alpeh. And at that point, much of the hostility towards Jews was directed at Parashat Alpeh. Um, and to this day, to this day, France is paying for her crimes, having hosted the first burning of the Talmud, without question, Akadosh Baruch Hu punished France, and, and in my opinion, one of, one of the clear punishments, and it's, it's almost too ironic to be true, is the same century which witnessed France hosting the first burning of the Talmud, also witnessed the birth of democracy in England, the Magna Carta, in the 13th century, and the fact that England, which is so often compared to France, discovered democracy so much earlier than France did, gave it basically a leg up on France and gave it equality and gave it, this is the week of July 4th, so Americans are celebrating their independence and their um, achieving democracy, and England achieved its democracy 500 years before the United States achieved its democracy, and France uh, was was significantly delayed. It's almost a, a miracle of nature for a country so close and so enlightened, so culturally advanced, can labor in totalitarianism and in um, exploitative monarchy for so long. And, and I think the part of it is because France was just so not, not to uh, not to of course sanitize England's record vis-à-vis the Jews, but this burning of the Talmud, which is such a traumatic moment, witnessed by the greatest of French rabbis, Maharami Rothenberg, who witnesses travesty and penned a very famous kino. His kino called Sha'ali Sufa Ba'esh L'Shlam Aviloyich, in which he encourages Torah, which is being burnt in Aish. Sufa Ba'esh is a moniker or a nickname for Torah. He encourages Torah, Sha'ali, please beseech, petition, seek the peace of your mourners. We mourn for you, Torah. We watch you being born, burnt, and we're mourning for you, Shalim, and please help us plead our case, Dr. Shabbat, who is invoking Torah to help plead the case of the Jewish people. So throughout history, Talmud Torah, Torah, Talmud, Babli is burnt. Um, it probably becomes institutionalized by Pope Martin in the 15th century, in which he creates a law that all Talmud has to be burnt without, throughout Christendom. But this entire process begins is launched on Shivas or Betamus way back when, a couple hundred years perhaps, before the actual destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, when Apostamos burns the Sefer Torah. And again, these two events launch phenomena which are so built into history that we just forget that Shivas or Betamus was the day they were launched. And the second event which I mentioned, the assault on Torah, so much of our national art of how we are doing as Jewish people, redemptively, State of Israel, has to be seen through the prism of the fate of Torah. And the fate of Torah was never more forlorn than it was 70 years ago after the Holocaust, when the bowels of Torah and the bowels of the yeshivas were eviscerated in Europe. And ironically and magically and supernaturally, 
Taro was never more successful, or has never been more successful, than it is today. Seventy years later, Taro is being learned in a way that has never been learned. The spread of Taro learning, the popularity of Taro learning. Um, we're inching closer to the celebration of the conclusion of the Dafayomi, the Siem Dafayomi, and, and there'll be 90,000 people in a stadium in New York honoring Torah, simply honoring Torah. I can say that the quality of Torah learning surpasses you know, certainly the dull in the previous generations, which we have a difficult time matching and replicating, but the democratic spread of Torah learning, and just the sheer honor we show Torah, the types of yeshivas we're building and shuls that we're constructing, which isn't Talmud Torah per se, but so much of Talmud Torah is not just how much of it is being learned, but how much of it is being celebrated and honored, the attitude towards Torah. These are so significantly, significantly improved. And those are two events which, and even at the time that those events occur, Chazal could not have known those events would be so faithful in shaping history in a tragic way, but they were. And even though they had nothing to do with the Beis Hamikdash per se, they were very much in sync with the great fall of man, um, which the Beis Hamikdash punctuated. And, of course, the fall of man is paralleled by the fall of the Jewish people because the Jewish narrative is a universal narrative, and as we succeed, humanity succeeds, and as we fall, humanity sinks into a deeper state. So, the fallen world and the fallen state of Jewish experience, which was clinched on Tisha B'Av as the two Bakhtin Mikdash were burnt, led to certain events which were launched in Shabbat Betamas. And again, I don't think Chazal could have seen this historically, but I think they sensed it experientially, that these were events that were worth institutionalizing, in part institutionalizing a day around. Um, I think there's a second issue which mandates or warrants Shabbat Betamas being converted. And it's not any one particular event, it's rather the collusion and the overlapping of events. I remember on a personal note a few years ago, listening to Rav Amitav, my Rosh Hashiva, discussing the Yom Kippur War. This was on the, I guess, the 30th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. This is 2003. He was crying as he was talking to us on Yom Kippur, and he was crying not just because it was Yom Kippur, but because our yeshiva, the Rosh Yeshiva, lost so many of its Talmudim. During that war, who left the base Madrash on Yom Kippur, knowing that they were going to their inevitable death, because the first wave of soldiers who went to battle, the Egyptians knew that they just had to act as human shields to die, so that the um, reservists could regroup and gather in the back lines and launch a counteroffensive. And Alitan was saying that we're able to reverse the war because the war started out very, very dreadfully. We were surprised on two fronts, we were caught unprepared. And it really could have been, uh, in many ways, far more um, destabilizing than any of the premonitions that people thought about before the Six-Day War, in which people got a clear sense of a strategic threat. Seventy-three, we were lulled into apathy, we were lulled into disinterest, and we were caught surprised. And Baruch Hashem, we reversed the war with the Kurdish Baruch Hu's help, and Rav Mithal felt that part of it was because of the Messias Nefesh that our soldiers displayed, and as I mentioned before, running towards certain death. Part of it, Ramital mentioned to us, as he was crying, was just the fact that the Arabs thought that they could exploit Kedushas Yom Hadin, Kedushas Yom Hadano, Kedushas Yom Akikorim to their benefit. And, and that was something which would never, never succeed. 
that the very fact that they thought that the notion that you can actually defeat the Jewish people on Yom Kippur, on their special day, excuse me for saying it because you don't want to trivialize any threat, but it's laughable. And even Haman understood that you have to play the calendar properly. You can't just choose any day. And he thought he located a month which was bereft of any meaning and bereft of any content. And ultimately, as Hazal say, he, he erred in that respect because it was the day that Moshe was born. But living through history, living through the first base Hamikdash and witnessing the cessation of the Tumid, specifically on the day that the Luchos were shattered. So that was the second event. This was the first overlap, the second event which occurred. And then living through the second base Hamikdash and witnessing the statue of Zeus being erected in the base Hamikdash on the day that the Luchos were shattered and on the day that the carbon was discontinued. And then watching a hundred years or so later, Apostamos, a Roman soldier burning a Sefer Torah, on the day that the statue was erected, and on the day that the carbon was terminated, and on the day, and then living through it a fifth time, the second day Samikdash, and watching the city being breached, and this is not circumstantial. This is part of a master plan, and this is divine retribution. And it's so hard sometimes to trace books to life. We read about certain things in books, and we believe in them, and then we leave the study hall, we leave the book, and there's a material, powerful world out there that seems to be churning on its own energy and pumping on its own steam. And, and sometimes, and that's always the issue when a Navi comes, is it real or is it just rabbinic? Some people, I, I, I'm a rabbi, so I feel pretty real, but... Sometimes rabbinic voices are just voices that we compartmentalize or we marginalize. Prophetic voices, divine voices. How do you sense that they're real? These are events that are prophesized about, that are forewarned. And it was that constant overlap of days, that constant overlap of events which occurred constantly on Shavasarbitamas, which convinced Chazal, or which convinced people, and Chazal saw the people being convinced these events were part of our own ish. We're part of a response to our betrayal, to our lack of loyalty. And in some ways, again, this is not meant to convert Shivasa Bratamas into a day of Simcha, although one day it will be, as Zechariah reminds us. But in some way, it was, to me, even comforting to what witness these events occurring on the same day. How could it be comforting to experience one tragedy after another? On the one hand, it was demonstrative and it was indicative that this was divine retribution. This wasn't just circumstantial. On the other hand, you had the sense that, well, these are events that were forewarned, that were prophesied, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had warned us about. And if HaKadosh Baruch Hu were authoring these events, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu would also one day reverse those events and was managing and choreographing the entire process throughout history. You get the feeling that this is a, as we would say in common jargon, this was a home game. This was an event that was taking place on our home turf as part of redemptive history, as part of predicted history, as part of divine history, not as part of circumstantial, incidental, capricious history. And... Again, most of it 
is overwhelmingly sad that so many tragic events occurred on the same day. But in every overwhelming tragedy, if you see the divine imprints, then you realize that there's going to be a recovery. And that's part of Shivasarbhatabas. Witnessing all these events overlapping on the same day reminded us there was a Kurdish Baruch's punishment, but also reminded us that it had a Kurdish Baruch's authorship. And this is really the conversation which takes place between Rabbi Akiva and the Chachamim in the end of that very, very well-known Gemara and Makos, where they see foxes scampering across the Temple Mount, the Beis Hamikdash, and everyone begins crying. Rabbi Akiva, who has the vision and the vantage point of an outsider, begins to chuckle. And they ask him why he's chuckling, and he... And, uh, to, you know, to shoot, uh, to beat it, you know, to cut through and, and get right to Rabbi Kiva's punchline, um, Rabbi Kiva says that if I see this prophecy of foxes scampering across the base Hamikdash, which is just so disproportionate, the Romans were so hostile, were so militant, they didn't just defeat us, but they burnt and they salted and they raised our base Hamikdash to the ground, well, then this just indicated that I said before, well, this is a home game for us. This is a Kanish Baruch's punishment. And inevitably, the guarantee of punishment has to be followed by a guarantee of redemption. And a Kanish Baruch will ultimately redeem them. And if the Nevoah of foxes scampering would come true, would be Kiva thought, then the Nevoah which Zechariah provided of children frolicking in cities and Yushalayim being rebuilt would also come to fruition. It's pretty much the same phenomena, the same experience. Sometimes when devastation is just so overwhelming and so biblical and historical and disproportionate and non-circumstantial but obviously faithful and providential, that can provide a bit of a nechama. And that's what Shavasubitamas is as well, more than any other day. Not just are there two events which occur in Shivasa Bhattamas, which inaugurated very, very difficult challenges of history. The burning of Sifri Tari, the burning and the attack on Tara, as well as the construction of a statue in the Beis Mikdash. But it's the overlap of five events. Perhaps no one event being that tragic, but the combination of the five and the inevitable conclusion that if five events overlap, then it must be HaKadosh Baruch Hu's imprint, and it must be HaKadosh Baruch Hu's punishment, and it must be something we deserve. And it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu turning away. But if he turns away, he'll one day turn back. And then I think there's one more part of Shiva Servitamus, going back to that first event. Because there are five events which occurred, and without question it's the overlap of five events, but it's also that one event, because it's the first event, not just the first of these five, but the first of everything. And that's the Eka Hazav, which occurred on Shavasar Ritamas, or a day before, because Moshe descended on Shavasar to shatter the Luchas. That was, as we would call it, the biggie. That was the tsunami. That was the seismic shift in history. Because we were 11 days away from Utopia. That's how long it would take to march from Har Sinai, Eretz Yisrael. And the original master plan was indeed take that 11-day journey, more or less, it's a pretty neatly packaged itinerary. The departments are in Tesla, Nissan, to receive the Torah seven weeks later in early summer, to march 11 days and enter Eretz Yisrael in early summer, wage supernatural wars with 30-plus kingdoms, and usher in utopia, usher in the end of time, usher in the kingdom of God, 
more or less by Rosh Hashanah time. More or less by Rosh Hashanah time. And if that had occurred, had Amisol not flinched, had they not misbehaved, had they had a little courage, a little vision, had they not balked at the opportunity, nothing would have diverted or detoured history. Everything that we've struggled through in history, all the detours, all the continents we've resided in, all the challenges we've faced, all the enemies we've subdued, all the suffering and tragedy which we've endured, would never have happened. History would have neatly ended 2,490 years, more or less, after it began. That was the original plan. 2,440, actually 2,500, excuse me, right? Because they marched and they wandered 40 years in the desert. But in theory, had they not balked, had they not delayed, they would have entered Eretz Yisrael 11 days later. And if there's one word that can describe Shavasar Batamus, not one word, it's one phrase, it's really the great fall. Everything else, everything else in history is impacted by Shavasar Batamus. Bate Mikdash would not have been destroyed. They would have been impregnable. Leadership would not have been replaced. It would have been indefatigable and indomitable. Moshe Rabbeinu would have led us into our country. And Moshe's leadership would have bolstered our presence there in a way that couldn't have been reversed. Our moral fiber would have been reinforced so that the moral crimes of the first base of Mikdash would not have been perpetrated. Our commitment and encounter with the Kodesh Baruch Hu in true monotheism would have been so robust that the pagan misadventures of the first base of Mikdash would never have occurred. Every fall, every moment of cowardice, every forfeiture of history, every surrender stems from the day we abdicated perfection and the day we left paradise after we had once again been replanted in Ganadin. Because that's the Chazal described Harsinai as eliminating the bitter poison of man's first great fall and offering man once again another chance at Ganadin, another chance at perfection. And we, we surrendered that. We forfeited that. We abandoned that. We abdicated that. And it's interesting that Maybe even the reason that Chazal are interested in listing the other four is just to demonstrate how nuclear, how central Shivasar is as the axis of man's fall. It really is the axis. And those are really the three themes of Shivasar. There are two events which aren't linked to the Beis HaMikdash, but in some way herald and serve as premonitions for very, very difficult elements of the 2,000-year Golis the attack on Tara, and the displacement of our own religious sites in favor of not just expanded deities, but alternative deities which were meant to displace HaKadosh Baruch Hu Second of all, there's a very, very unique overlap of five events which can't be circumstantial, which can't be incidental, which convince people that this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's anger, this is divine retribution, the overlap of the same date. It, it, there's no way that it's circumstantial. In some ways, it also reminds us, as it reminded of Yekiva, that if it's not circumstantial, then it also won't be terminal, and that there won't be a recovery, and there will one day be a reversal. And then finally, um, the Shiva Supitamas as the source, the moment, the great fall of Jews, the great fall of mankind, and everything that happens stems from Shiva Sir Thomas.